Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message, it was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear, please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 679. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. And hope everyone is safe and well. We've had some huge, huge storms coming over at the northeast of England and kind of Scotland and the borders and everywhere like that. And it's been pretty hideous, to be honest. It's, I don't think it's been as bad as like the big last storm, but it's it's took the roof off my hut in the in the garden in the allotment. So I've got that to fix. So and again, we're just there's trees down all over the place, and it's just a. You know, a desperate sight when you're seeing people's fences down, gardens just wrecked. I've seen trampolines in the in the road and all sorts. <laughs> anyway, I hope everyone's safe and well. So I'll tell you what the main fiction is. It is Wherever the Fancy Takes You by Paula Hammond. This story first appeared in A Tribute to H.G. Wells, stories inspired by the Masters of Science Fiction, Volume 2, A Dark and Beautiful Future, published by, I think it's Belenga Books, October the 20th, 2019. I'll give you a little heads up about Paula. Paula Hammond is a professional writer and digital artist based in London, England. When not glued to her computer, she can be found in indulging in her passions for film, theatre, sci-fi and real ale. If you should spot her in the pub, she'll be the one in the corner mumbling ghostbuster quotes and waiting for the transporter to lock onto her signal. That's <laughs> Paula. This story is narrated by Will Staggle. 
Will Stagger lives in Tucson, Arizona, where he works as a creative professional by day and as a songwriter and musician with his band mate Stacy by night. Together they are liquid centers. At the moment, he's probably reading or rereading Leviathan Falls by James S.A. Corey and mourning the end of a great science fiction series. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Wherever the Fancy Takes You by Paula Hammond. Read to you by Will Stegel. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The door opened with a dull thud, and a man who appeared to be little more than a teetering pile of Scotsweed that began at a pair of mud-stained brogues and ended in a felt hat tied in place with a wayward scarf staggered into the lounge. The pub was barely five minutes from Euston Station, but inside its homely frame, the bustle of London streets was reduced to a murmur. Even the whistles of departing steam trains seemed more like some exotic dust chorus than the howls of industry and empire going indefatigably about their business. It is a curious feature of English public houses that they have two rooms. One, the bar, where working men gather to wash away the day's cares. The other, the lounge or so-called snug, more usually reserved for ladies and gentlemen. Being a stranger, McIntyre, for that was the name of this walking bundle of fabric, hadn't realized his mistake until the door had closed, but, given the weather outside, he felt no inclination to walk around the pub to the bar's front entrance. No, a place by the fire and a meal in his own private room would suit very well. Five hours by train from Edinburgh, six by carriage to the great Scott city itself. Eleven hours in total without food or a dram was enough to make him ready to drop. And drop he did, fairly throwing himself into the nook by the fire where the remains of a meal and a half-empty pint pot were the only clues that the dark recess across the table was inhabited at all. If inhabited was a word that could be used for an undefinable lump in shape, dozing in the ruddy glow of the fire. McIntyre was in a sociable frame, having escaped the horrors of not one, but two big cities in a single day. A great feat for a man whose life was spent, for the most, with only cattle and midges for company. So, the fact that he banged the table and called for service a little louder than was necessary was in part good humor, and in part the hope that his companion would wake and provide some conversation to accompany the evening's repast. 
His table thumping didn't do the trick. But the landlady's lusty response to his call for service. Old your horses, mister. No need to wake the old bloomin' house. Certainly did. The man, as the lump and shape revealed itself to be, started and sat upright. It was as he leant forward to reach for his neglected pint that McIntyre managed to make eye contact and not a silent rebuke at the landlady's unnecessary revi. "'She's a pair of lungs on her, no mistake,' McIntyre said to no one in particular. "'Certainly,' no one replied in an encouragingly friendly tone. Delighted to find that the social skills of a Highland crofter were more than equal to the demands of the big city, McIntyre decided to press his luck. Heading to the small wooden hatch to replace his order, he turned to his newfound friend and said in a tone that he hoped implied he did this sort of thing all the time, "'May I buy you a drink?' A plowman's was ordered, the meal comprising the usual mix of cheese, doorstops of bread, pork pie, pickled onions, and enough mustard to paint the whole thing yellow. Additionally, two pints of London porter were agreed on. For while McIntyre preferred scotch, he secretly doubted he'd be able to get a decent drop this deep into Sassanach territory. The two men sat in silence until McIntyre had finally downed the last piece of mustard-leathered pie crust and given out a satisfied grunt. Ugh, man! You've no idea how welcome that was. The food on the train wasn't a fit for man nor beast, and I swear I'd expire before I submitted to the mess of broiled mush that they were passing off as lunch. I've choked down a kipper or two in my time, but the things they were serving up looked older than my shoe leather, and that's saying something. The Scot gave a merry chuckle at his own expense, and encouraged by his companion's good-humored countenance, felt it was time for introductions. I'm McIntyre, by the way. Dougal McIntyre of Lactay. Come down to the city to meet my baby brother, all grown up and newly returned to the Americas. Now, as odd as this sounds, as though I've never been to London before, you've the look of someone I know. His companion stared into his pint savoring, as it seemed, the dark sweet molasses taste, before saying in a tone of half pride, half regret, I'd never have took you for a sporting gent, but then there's many who knew me in the day, and many more heard my story. So even after all these years, my surprise should be if you hadn't have recognized me. Billy Broom at your service, Governor. Though you know me by my fighting name, Brixton Bill. McIntyre, shocked, but working hard not to offend the big man, admitted that he found bare-knuckling fighting far too bloody to be a follower of the sport, and asked if Bill was really so famous that his story could have been made all the way to a teeny part of Scotland. Oh, I'd say so, mate. And what a tale! Now, I'll tell you what, you've been such a fine gent, and me all cozy here with my pint, I've a mind to tell you what I ain't never told no one before. The real deal, so to speak. None of that rubbish that they printed in the papers. McIntyre caught the hint in the landlady's eye, and two more porters magically appeared. With that, Brixton Bill sank back into his smoky nook, calloused hands wrapped around his pint jug, feet stretched out towards the door his knob features settling into a thoughtful expression. Now, he began, if it's true that you know nothing of the sport, then it's best I give you the facts of it before we start. Bare-knuckle fighting has never been legal in England, but that ain't stopped it. Legend has it that the first fight was arranged by some bored lord between his butler and his gardener, and pretty soon more bored lords were paying up good money to watch poor men beat each other bloody for their amusement. It's a foul sport, and make no mistake. A round ends with a knockdown. A match ends with a knockout. Some matches go on for hundreds of hours, 
Just 30 seconds of rest are allowed between a knockdown and the start of a new round. Another 8 seconds are allowed for you to come to scratch, meaning back to the center of the ring. No one in their right mind would think this was a sensible way to make a living, but it's made plenty of men rich. Yes, even men like me, who were never born special and never had no clever schooling. What I did have was what you might call a certain primitiveness. I grew up big and tall, with a quick temper, a mind of my own, and a knack for finding trouble. Perhaps I should have joined the army, but I've never been one for following orders. Still, I have intelligence enough to know how the world works, so when I fell into the business, I determined to treat it like a trade, learn my way, and be the best at it I could be. I took to it natural, like though. I've always resented the lords who ran the fights and saw me as just another possession, something for their profit and amusement. I did well for myself, too, but what fame I'd add was all under the table, if you know what I mean. People in the business knew me, and I knew them. It was only my last fight that made the papers, and they never knew the half of it, just rumors and hearsay. McIntyre leaned forward, catching the flash in Brixton Bill's eye as he recalled the event from so long ago, and for a moment, the man in the nook seemed to grow in size. He was perhaps sixty, still lean and muscular, but now it looked that he carried about him an air of assurance and power that McIntyre hadn't noticed before. This was a man who had lived a tough life, had been tested all the way, and knew that there was nothing he could achieve if he set his mind to it. For McIntyre, whose life was one of quiet routine, of Kirk and family, it was like looking at someone possessed with the knowledge beyond what mortal men should dare. For a second, he regretted that he'd ever set foot in the little snug of Brie Louise. He stuck himself deeper into the own corner of the fireside and listened to the cocky rhythm of Bill's cockney tones with a growing dread of what he might hear. So, how do you get to see a bare-knuckle fight if they're illegal? Bill asked. That's what most people want to know. I'll tell you, none of it would be possible without the blessed railways. First things first, there's word of mouth. Maybe if it's a big fight, ads in the sporting pink. All it ever says is the name of a railway station and a time. Your sporting gents go to said railway station. There, the man at the booking office will ask them what they want, and they'll say, a ticket for two o'clock fancy. If you've ever heard people say, whatever strikes your fancy, or wherever the fancy takes you, then that's where the phrase comes from. So, they get their ticket, and they take their train, and at some point between stations, the conductor pulls the cord, the driver stops the train, and the guard calls for all passengers for the fancy to alight. Fights usually in a nearby field, and the passengers signal for the train to stop and pick them up once it's done. Genius, ain't it? An entire sport run right under the nose of the railway commission, and no one any the wiser. Well, this was the year 1870. I was still a young man, 30 as fit as a butcher's dog, all my own teeth, and a full head of hair, black and wiry, like a biblical Samson, handsome as the devil himself, some might have said. I had twenty wins under my belt, and had just become champion of all England by defeating gentleman George Hurst at Medway Island that spring. I had money in the bank, a sweetheart or two, and a mind to pack it all in and open an academy for young boxers up in the city. Something classy. But my patron, the Earl of Westerham, wanted one last bout, one last big payout. He'd been over in the States, seen their champion, and he figured I could take him easy. So he set this fight up, see, between me and this Yank, 
a black fellow by the name of Jumpin' Joe Jenkins, on account of the way he dodged and weaved around the ring. The winner would be declared heavyweight champion of the world and a pot of £6,000. Well, I could hardly refuse. On top of that, I knew Jenkins by reputation. He was a master pugilist, a true artist. If this was to be my final match then, win or lose, I'd reckoned it'd be an honour to pit wits with the man. But then, things turned out very different from what was planned. Very different indeed. I still remember the trek across the field. Dawn yet not up. The whole world a mist of grey. In the distance I could hear the foxes yelling in that hellish way they do when they're out for romance. I'm city-born and bred, and the countryside has always made me feel uneasy. Too many eyes watching you. The ring had been marked out with Davy lamps, 24 foot square, and I was there early to walk the ground, get to know the terrain, any dips and hazards that might give me an upper hand. I was working steady, barefooted as I always did, feeling for the way the soft grass moves between my toes, when I heard a voice hailing me from across the field. It was Jenkins asking if he might join me. Well, I had no objections, so pretty soon we were both pacing back and forth in the shadowy half-light, passing little pleasantries. Hard to imagine that in less than an hour we two strangers would be trying to beat each other's brains out. It's a funny life, no mistake. Dawn in the city creeps up on you, edges its way around the houses and in under the smog, sneaky-like, so all you ever notice is that suddenly you can see without the need for a lamp. In the country the sun rises like an explosion. It's like all the gods are putting on a display just for you. That day it seemed like the world was on fire. I remember Jenkins looked across at me with a wicked smile and said, Blood for the blood gods. Are you ready to pay? I laughed at that, but when we learned exactly what our patrons had planned, his words seemed all the more ominous. The day was getting hotter now. In the distance, we could smell the tang of the city's cooking fires, its chimneys and factories, its tanneries and breweries. Jenkins nodded towards the red, green, and yellow signal lights flickering on and off down the track and the tinkling sound of shunting trains ringing and rumbling. Voices behind us announced the arrival of the first punters, dressed in their finery, lines of attendants carrying blankets and straw baskets crammed with refreshments. Time was moving on, and the world was waking up. We got ourselves kitted out, and were warming up with a little friendly sparring. Me tickled pink to see how Jenkins did indeed jump around, all fast and nimble. Below us, the train screamed to a halt, filling the field with plumes of steam and great wisps of coal smoke. It set Jenkins coughing so much I feared he'd throw a lump up butt. Like I said, I'm a city boy. Iron dust and soot, it's practically what men like me are made of. The passengers arrived in spits and spots, clambering up the embankment led by the train guard, and eventually, all was set. We'd expected the match to be big, but we'd never seen crowds like it. There was a carnival feel in the air, and even though it weren't far past dawn, the toffs were already popping corks on the bubbly. There were men selling bottles of beer, and one chap had set up a little army stove, and was heating up a pot of spicy curry, which he piled into hollowed-out penny loaves, so as the bread acted like a crust and a plate all in one. It was then that we'd seen it. The whole Bloomin' County must have seen it, a pale streak zigzagging across the sky. It stopped, right overhead, like a bolt of sea-green lightning, 
frozen a second before it was about to strike the earth. Made me feel right queasy to see how it just hovered there, with nothing above or below to hold it steady. We all felt it. Saw it, too. Static, coming from the thing, and when I glanced around, there were little electric sparks, like you get at the business end of a telegraph machine, flickering over everything. Jenkins, with his ebony skin, fairly glowed. I looked down and I saw that I was similarly infected. I'm not one that's easily panicked, and Jenkins seemed to be a man after my own heart. We nodded at each other, and knew that whatever was about to happen, it wasn't going to be your standard fight. The lightning seemed to shudder. The light shifted, and around us the crowd took one huge, startled intake of breath. And there it was, hunkered before us, a creature of raw, brutal power, twice my size, stocky limbs knotted with muscles, not an ounce of surplus flesh. It was naked, except for a hunk of material wrapped around its nethers and some curious footwear that put me in mind of sand shoes. It stood upright too, as men do, with the proper number of limbs, but in place of hands were wicked claws, as though each finger had been removed and replaced with scimitars. Its head, if you can call it that, was set so low between its shoulders it scarcely deserved the name. Its eyes were cat-like, and where its mouth should have been was a pouting ring of flesh lined with teeth like some gigantic lamprey. Its skin was made up of layers of blood-red scales that looked likely to be slick to the touch. It was a color that only ever seen in nature as a warning to stay the hell away. What struck me, though, wasn't this thing's unnatural appearance. The world is full of curiosities, and I'd seen otter offerings in my local fishmongers. Stuff dragged up from the depths, all eyes, mouth, and spines, corpse-like and glowing. No, what chilled me was this villain's whole look, his manner, which reflected a terrible physical might, backed by the confidence of a warrior used to victory. No one screamed. No one ran. And that was enough to confirm my growing suspicions that whatever was happening, my patron was up to his greedy, lordly, chubby little neck in it. I looked across the field and saw him laughing and backslapping his bookmaker chums. Jenkins was eyeing his patron, too, some sharp-looking fella in a cowboy hat, who was also looking pretty pleased with himself. "'Looks like we've been sold down the river, mister,' Jenkins said with a spit. "'You're right there, chum,' I replied, my blood up. "'And I'll tell you something else. Once we've done with this monstrosity, every man, Jack, who came here to sit and sip and get rich watching us die today, will pay.' even if I have to come back from the grave to make it happen. A man in my line learns to read people pretty well. And you know what was odd? As I said that, for a moment, I saw this big beast in front of me do a double take. Crazy, right? Or maybe not, as we found out later. The only thing that saved my life was that the brute clearly knew nothing about boxing. Oh, those claws could have sliced me in two, but he signaled his moves like a mime artist. I saw those tree-trunk arms of his windmilling towards us and simply sidestepped away. Jenkins, to my left, did something clever with his feet, and before the creature's arms had hit empty air, he too was safe. We danced around like that for a few minutes, getting the measure of each other, feeling pretty confident, if truth be told. Then the horror did something that neither of us expected. It jumped straight up in the air. Its prodigious legs were like pistons. It soared right over our heads and landed with such force that the earth shook and we both went down. It was then that Nonek rounded on me, 
kicking out with all his freakish strength. I barely moved my head out of the way in time, and if it hadn't been for Jenkins, already on his feet raining blows on the devil's back, I would have been dog meat for sure. He may have been a mountain of brawn, but he was no fool. I could see how his keen eyes watched our every move, looking for an opening. Twice he caught Jenkins in a clinch. Twice I was able to help my mate kick and gouge his way free. Three times I found myself under his huge feet, and three times Jenkins was able to pull me clear before the thing could bring its full, terrible weight down to bear on me. It was all very well to have the advantage of numbers, but I couldn't go on the attack while I watched out for my companion, and neither could he. We weren't used to this type of game, but we had to learn, and fast. We adapted. We started to figure out his weakness, his favorite moves, but it wasn't so much a prize fight as a war of attrition. We too, nimble on our feet, landing punch after punch, whittling away at no next reserves. The fiend had none of the skills that characterized the bare-knuckle breed, but its fists were unceasing, and while they rarely landed a blow, when they did, the results left us dazed and bloody. One of us down, gasping, dreading that a broken bone or torn tendon had ended our chances, the other playing mouse, trying to draw the beast's attention away long enough for his mate to recover. Butting, biting, gouging, kicking, hitting below the waist. It's a normal match. It wouldn't have been allowed, but this thing seemed to be fighting by its own rules. So we went at it, used every dirty trick in the book. Never did I fight such a bout. After an hour, my fists were torn and swollen from the constant impact on no-neck's scaly skin. After two, I ceased thinking in terms of tactics and form. At three, my muscles cried out for rest. At four, my whole frame was a fire of wrenching, twisted agony. My legs trembled. I was half-blind and dizzy from a hundred tiny cuts, a hundred crushing blows. I was numb and bruised, laboring hard, chest burning, sick with the strain of standing. I wanted it done. Jenkins, whose weapon was speed, was nearly spent. Several times he tripped, and it seemed that even his fancy footwork wouldn't be enough to save him. Yet, slowly, we began to win. I managed to land some solid blows on Nonex's curious head, and now, when he peered at us with those feline eyes, it was clear he couldn't see much. We focused on that, and he began to make mistakes. We threw everything at him, the last of our reserves. He reeled and shook his huge torso, his chest heaving spasmodically. Rivers of a strange green liquid that I took for blood flowed freely now, pooling in his mouth, so that as he breathed it foamed and made him appear rabid. Clumsier than ever, clearly unable to see anything through the film of blood and swollen flesh that had become his face, finally he fell, and we did what had to be done to end the match. It was poor sport, and I'm ashamed the things played out like that, but Jenkins and me knew that this was no ordinary bout. The pigs who'd sold us downriver wanted more than a knockout. It was a fight to the death, no neck or ours. I don't think they cared much beyond the value of the bet. The crowd were pretty riled up by now. If there's a more pitiable sound than a bunch of toffs who can't even dress themselves baying for blood, then I've yet to hear it. My patron was almost purple with rage. For God's sake, man, he screamed. Do your job. Finish it. 
There's a bonus in it for the one who makes the killing blow. Nonak was in a bad shape. But if that's what they wanted, they'd have to do their own filthy work. I'd never killed a man. No, nor a beast. And wasn't about to add that sin to my score sheet, no matter how big the payday. We stood our ground, and when the cowboy and the earl strode over, pistols raised, ready to take matters into their own hands, well, money or no, they were just men, and they went down as easy as everyone else does when they get a haymaker to the chin. It was that, I think, that got the creatures in that strange lightning craft interested. I know now that they'd been lied to about everything. The cowboy had stumbled across something wonderful while messing around with the telegraph set. Life on other planets. Don't ask me how. Maybe it was them who came looking for us. At first he didn't believe it, then gradually, as he learnt that they were sporting gents like ourselves, he saw the chance to get even richer. They'd been invited here with their champion in good faith. Only the punters and the bookmakers knew that was really being sold was a death match. Our transition to their ship was so swift that Jenkins and me barely noticed. One minute we were standing there with no neck slumped at our feet. The next we were in impossible space in the company of beings much like their poor beleaguered champion. They spoke to us in glowing terms, said that they were shamed by the way things had been done, saluted us as equals and victors, and offered us to show us the wonders of the galaxy. Naturally, we'd agreed, though we did make one request, that they'd deal with the dogs who meant to profit from our deaths. I spoke in the heat of the moment, still strung up from the fight. Perhaps I was too hasty, but that's something for me and the Almighty to discuss should I ever find myself heading in his direction. In my defense, I had no way of knowing what terrible powers they had at their command. Nonek, I was pleased to see, looked to be receiving the very best sort of doctoring, and as they worked, they gave him a bit of the old cross-examining. He seemed to have a lot to say. We gathered that he'd seen how shocked we were at his arrival, how ill-prepared we'd been for the bout, but how nobly we'd fought all the same. They had all sorts of ideas about fairness and honor, and I guess, in the end, they did what they felt was right. Years later, I read about the fire that fell from the sky, how it raged for days and burnt the field down to the bedrock before it could be extinguished. What all the papers agreed was inexplicable was how the conflagration was contained in a perfect circle around the fight arena, almost like an invisible fence had kept both the people in the fighter inside. No one survived and Jenkins and I were thought to have died that day too. It was then that the story started. Some said that it was the Yanks who brought explosives. Others blamed gypsies, then the anarchists. There had been many of the country's sons and heirs in the crowd that day, so in the end, that was the story that stuck. When I returned from my travels, the rumor mill started up again, and I fed the press enough tidbits to keep them interested while I tussled with the lawyers to reclaim what was mine me being dead and all. It was mostly rubbish, with a few half-truths in the mix, but, there being no proof either way, they soon lost interest. After, I put my head down and opened a little gym, like I'd always planned. With the money from that, I'd rented some rooms near my favorite pub, a nice place near Euston, where they always keep a table in the snug for me, and there's always folks to chat to should I be in the mind to recall my past adventures. Brixton Bill, tail-ended, gave McIntyre a cheery wink and busied himself with the pint pot while his astonished audience pondered just how much of his wild story to believe. Jenkins? the Scot asked, reluctant to let the evening end so soon. 
Still out there. Still winning titles, too, I'll bet. He and Nonek never could pronounce the fellow's real name. Ended up forming quite the tag team. He even got himself a set of those fancy finger swords in the end, though I never did hold to them myself. You still fight? At my age, Bill laughed. Hardly likely. Besides, he added with just a hint of that arrogance which had so alarmed McIntyre earlier. Once you've fought them Venusians, well, normal bouts seem a bit pale in comparison. And while new champions come and go, there ain't none of them that can hold a head up and say that they're the champion of the entire Bloomin' Earth. Now can they? The end. And there you go. Big thank you to Paula. Paula, thank you so much. Lovely to have you on the show. And Will, again, always a pleasure. Thank you, lad. It really is. So that is Starship Sova's 679. <laughs> I figured that just astounds us sometimes. 679 shows. And now that's not even including the hundred and odd that were the original Starship Sova's as well. <gasps> dearie, dearie me. How <laughs> time goes. Until next time, I'd just like to say a good night from me. Thank you for listening. Anytime soon, can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. But you're so far from I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.